Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. So welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I'm your host, Jeanette Linfoot, and today I am joined by a really incredible and interesting guest. Now, in today's episode, we are not going to be talking about business, but we are going to be talking about sex. So the guest for today's episode, she is a professor of the Department of Sociology in the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. She specializes in, well, a number of areas, actually, feminist theory, gender and sexuality, urban sociology, to name, uh, to name just a few. And she's not only that, but she is a twice published author. And her latest book, which was out this year in 2020, is called Paying for Sex in the Digital Age. Now, the accolades that this incredible lady has um, are really phenomenal. And most people, when they send through a a CV or a bio, is a couple of pages. But for this particular um, professor, it's um, over 20 pages. So, you know, she's been published in 27 articles. Uh, You know, she's been in eight research reports, numerous uh, lectures and presentations, fellowships and grants, 14 of those. She's actually appeared in 81 professional papers and has had a massive public media impact with the media over in the States. So New York Times Magazine, USA Today, NBC. So I'm incredibly, incredibly excited and honored to have Professor Barb Brents on the show. Well, thank you very, very much for having me all the way across the pond here. Uh, And it's a real honor. I want to, on behalf of your listeners, I want to thank you. It's a real great privilege to be in front of such an accomplished businesswoman and what you're doing to give back is really quite amazing. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Bob. That's so incredibly kind of you to say. Um, and you know, it's, this, I'm really, I've been so looking forward to doing this interview because it's such an interesting area. And, you know, I think there's a lot of myths around the topic of, you know, sex workers and prostitution. And, you know, and of course, we're going to actually talk a lot about those perceptions and how accurate or inaccurate they are. Um, you have a very interesting backstory yourself, personally, which um, I know we're going to touch on that as well. And, you know, so we're, we're, it's all, all no holds barred interview, I guess, really, but from a very, very different aspect. So I think a great place to start, if you don't mind, Barb, would be take us through your journey, you know, where you started life and, and sort of where you are today, really. And then we'll go from there. Great. Okay. Well, first I want to say when you introduced me and said it's not about sex, a uh, business, it's about sex. Actually, a lot of my motivation and what I've tried to do in my research and is to show that that sex in today's world is a business. Um, and so uh, I think I hope that's what we'll be talking about a little bit as we go on. 
Uh, how I got started in this, I, I like to say that my mother would turn over in her grave if she uh, knew I was talking about sex so much. Um, <laughs> I, was, I, uh, I came from a, 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 a nice, I was pretty privileged white middle class family. My mom was an immigrant from the West Indies and she was raised very traditionally, very conservative. And my job was to go to college so I could marry somebody rich and raise kids and uh, cook and clean in the kitchen. Uh, and of course, I was uh, raised in the 1960s and a time of a lot of social change and protesting and women's movement. And that's the last thing I wanted to do. So I kind of was a little bit of a rebel uh, all the way through uh, my childhood. Um, and but I have to say, my, my dad was a, a lawyer. I grew up in Texas. Um, it was uh, a time when the public schools were well funded and were really good. And so I got a great public school education. Uh, uh, and my dad just always liked two things. He liked to travel and he was curious about everything in the world. And I think I, I got that. I never started out to be, I'm going to be a professor um, at a at a big university, but um, and and in some ways, my my approach is sort of counter to what I hear a lot of your guests say. I didn't start out going, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. I have brilliant goals. It's like no, I'm just sort of moseying along through life. Uh, I went to a college that was close to where I lived and close to a boyfriend. And uh, even though I was a little bit of a uh, activist and interested in changing the world, because that was my environment, um, I was going to be an elementary school teacher because I like kids. You know, that was a safe thing to do. So I majored in that one semester of college. Uh, then I thought that's too easy. That's for other people, not me. Uh, and I decided I was going to be a sports writer um, because at that time uh, it it wasn't until I was late in my sophomore, uh, my second to last year of high school, that they said nationally they passed a, a, the title Title IX they call it in the U.S. where they had to fund women's sports the same level as men's sports. So our high school got teams for women and so I competed and I'm a fast learner so I was pretty good and didn't have to compete about people who've been training in clubs all their life. Uh, so I love sports and I got that from my mom uh, and uh, so I decided I was going to be a sports writer and I switched colleges to another college uh, nearby that my friends went to and majored in at the University of Missouri. They had a really good journalism school and I majored in journalism and uh, got my first job as at a hospital in public relations, um, which I liked. And I did a couple of stories about uh, elderly people and about, um, you know, medicine today, which sort of piqued my interest. And I said, you know what, I want to write longer stories. I'm, I'm interested in learning more. So I uh, decided to go back to school and I was going to get a master's degree and work in government uh, job to help the elderly. Uh, 
and but there's no way I could ever teach at a university. Maybe I'll teach at a small community college, but you know, not going to do that. Uh, then I went to uh, University of Missouri grad school, and I just got hooked on big ideas and and thinking, and the idea that uh, you could connect uh, critical thinking, thinking outside of the box, with getting the world to approach you know how they do things differently uh and i was in, got interested in um, policy uh and aging but I, as i as i got on i did my dissertation on the social security act which was not so much about how to help old people but how the fact that social security bill which is pensions for old people essentially uh was created to sort of keep the workers quiet and uh, kind of stop uh, socialist fomenting that was happening at that time. And anyway, uh, and it defined old age. I mean, old age really didn't exist until we said, okay, you got to quit working at 65 and, and we'll give you a pension. Uh, so I, I, I got interested that way. I uh, wasn't going to go into academia, but I really loved research. Uh, I applied a couple of people talked me into applying for a couple of academic jobs uh, and I applied for three. This is completely unheard of and this is uh, shows you how much the world has changed because nowadays kids coming out of grad school have to apply for 30, 100 jobs to get any. Well, I applied for three and I got an uh, offer for an interview. I, I got an offer for an interview at University of Nevada, Las Vegas no way was I ever going to live in Las Vegas, that den of sin and, you know, capitalist exploitation and women's bodies on display. Uh, uh, no way. But the due date was on my birthday. So I thought, oh, well, I'll give it a shot. So I came out and uh, I, I liked it. Uh, the guy said, you know, this is a fast-growing place. The university is growing. We have high hopes. This was the first position in our PhD program. Um, and you can make a difference here. And so they offered me the job there, something also which never happened. <laughs> yeah. And there's no way, no way I'm going to take it, uh, even though it was intriguing. And then my uh, boyfriend at the time, who has been my uh, partner now for 30 something plus years said oh I'll go with you and I'm like oh okay then I'll go so I took the job and I've been here ever since now uh and what what was it it's a story of I guess making opportunities out of things that other people think are not important because I was interested in political sociology and politics and policy and um and I was I sort of rejected, I hate to say this, but that at the time, that was boys' research. Women research families and uh, marriage and that sort of thing, and nah, I'm not going to do that. But I got out here, and I was a woman, and so I, they said, okay, you're going to teach gender classes. I'm like, oh, all right. But uh, I did, and duh, um, when you research an area that at the time nobody has taken seriously, you begin to realize what they've missed. 
and how important understanding this huge aspect of social life is uh, that people's blinders have just prevented you from seeing. So I, I started teaching gender and feminist classes and, and then um, a couple of things got me interested in the sex industry. Uh, one was uh, my neighbor um, uh, at the time who owned, you know, we owned a small house in the downtown neighborhood where we still live. And my neighbor was a cocktail waitress. And so I would watch her every day in her skimpy little outfit. Uh, go. And one day I said to her, don't, don't, isn't that like, don't you feel exploited wearing a cocktail outfit, revealing and, and all this? And she said, no, you know, the worst thing about the job is the cigarette smoke. And which at that time was <laughs> since changed. And, uh, and I realized, wait a minute, she's making enough money to buy her own house. And how many service workers can afford to buy her own house? She was in a union job, getting decent pay, um, health insurance. Uh, so I was like, wait a minute. Um, and then I was having students in my class uh, who wanted to do their papers on sex work. And so they, it was, I remember there was a tea, a, group class, group of uh, students. One of them was a, uh, a returning student, an older woman who'd had a bunch of kids. She was from Mormon and from Mormon family. And then she uh, apparently had sat next to a sex worker in one of her other classes and said, I'm going to interview her. So she got together with some other kids and they went and interviewed a uh, sex worker, a person who worked at a strip club, interviewed a madam at a near a brothel that in an a legal brothel in the next county over where they're legal. And she was like, you wouldn't believe this. They're such interesting people. It's completely different than I thought it would be. And at that point, uh, I was like, there's something to it. And another student in my class said, yeah, I used to work as a stripper in New York. And I was talking, you know, feminism sees the perspective of women and stands up for women. And she said, well, no, there were feminists that were protesting in front of where I worked and they were throwing things at me and they were mean. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, uh, now, of course, I understand that, you know, the feminist movement has been very split when it comes to understanding sexuality, women's sexuality, as I was when I first moved to Las Vegas. Um, but then I began to see, but wait a minute, there, they should be understanding it from your perspective. Uh, so that got me intrigued. And here I am in Nevada, the only state in the country that has legal prostitution uh, and a tourist industry that's built on sexuality. Uh, so uh, 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 another woman joined the department who had an expertise in feminist thought and gender. And so Kate Hausbeck, who, uh, now Kate Corgan. So we teamed up and decided to do research on the brothels. Um, this is like to make a short story long. Uh, and the first thing we did was we held a public forum uh, on sex work where we had three nights, one night of workers, one night of managers, and then the next night of police to talk about it. And the audience was, was filled. Um, 
and we got in the newspapers uh, and then about that time uh, a legislator in the state decided to introduce a bill to shut down um, the uh, escorting agencies, the people that hand out flyers advertising women coming to your room to dance nude. Um, but of course, they also exchange sex for money. So he was trying to pass a bill that really wouldn't have done much, just criminalize the women, uh, which they were already criminal if they did that anyway. Anyway, but it was a no-brainer bill that, you know, here, look, I'm being good and moral and true. So he testified against it, which he was shocked at. Um, so he said, oh, I can't believe people at UNLV are studying the sex industry. This is, this is wrong. And the university defended us. Uh, and then from that point on, when we went to interview people that brought this, they said, oh, we've heard of you. We'll let you come in and, and interview us. And, uh, and I've been intrigued uh, ever since. And uh, a recognition that this is an issue that not just deals with women and gender, but also with sexuality and the way our country approaches sexuality. It deals with policy and politics and contradictions in the way we think about uh, all of this. And it's a, a, a group of marginalized individuals that nobody was taking seriously. Um, so that has sort of driven me ever since. Wow. Well, my gosh, there's so much in there, Bob. I mean, I, lo I love the fact that when we started um, having a chat, that you said to me, I'd said, this is not about business, it's about sex. And you rightly so corrected me because it's so far reaching, isn't it? I mean, what you just talked about then, you know, obviously there's a, there's a commercial aspect here that, you know, is, is clearly very, very much a driver of, of, of this as well. There's a, so, a, so, a societal impact. There's a, a question around, is it empowering or disempowering to women you know are, are these women or men actually I guess being um, forced to do this or is it out of choice um, so there's so many different angles but I think what's interesting as well is that you're an incredibly uh, passionate person about you know and you're very principled and you you know you you, you have strong views um, on things but you didn't start out with the path of I'm going to become a professor you know specializing on the sex trade it kind of you know, evolved that way over time. And I think sometimes that's, that's actually um, quite comforting for people to hear because you're at the top of your game in your chosen topic and the influence and impact that you're making is huge, right? Um, but I think sometimes people think there's an expectation that people that are very significant achievers in, in whatever their field is, whether it's education, research, business, whatever, charities, that they always knew what they were going to do. <laughs> and they kind of had a vision, have a vision, go for it, you know, take all the action. And for some people, that is the case. But I think it's refreshing to hear that actually you kind of got into it, but not through a direct route at all. Um, and yet you're incredibly passionate about it and you, you've kind of found your home in a way, but it just took a while to get to it, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think I, I got lucky, you know, uh, and at some level I knew what I, I liked 
And I knew that when I was walking down a path that didn't feel right, I could correct um, and, and did. Uh, but the other thing was is that I always had men mentors or people like saying, you know, maybe you should do this or encouraging me to do uh, different things. It, it's like, <laughs> I think I, I, I initially would choose my majors depending on what my friends were doing. Um, but the social aspect is clearly important. And when I applied for jobs, I had a, a professor that said, here, I'll sit down with you and help you write these job applications and just try it out. And, uh, and even today, I have learned uh, that I can't do this by myself. I have particular skills. I have uh, ways I work well and ways I don't. And I need, I need other people. And I've been really lucky to have great co-authors and mm. great team members and people who've encouraged me um even even in my profession which is has been a male dominated profession until fairly recently uh i was stuck at a particular level in the hierarchy promotion um at associate professor professors are uh untenured they're assistant professors and they get tenure uh once they've reached a certain level of accomplishments and then there are associate professors and then you reach a certain level of accomplishment and then you're full and I was associate for a long time and I had um, as were many of the women at the university that came at the same time that I did uh, and it wasn't until sort of a new crop of younger women came in and said you've got to go up for full you've got to apply and they encouraged me to apply and it was like uh, life-changing and it's in the sense that uh, how I felt about myself and my own self-confidence, as well as how others saw me. And I recognized at that point that um, other people needed mentors, other people needed role models. Uh, and, and I shouldn't be shy, even though I'm uncomfortable about that idea, uh, I shouldn't be shy about doing that. So, and that's why what you do is so important, you know? Um, yeah, I think I think it's it's a really really good point you make because it doesn't again it doesn't matter what field you're in, but role models are just so important because if you can never see someone that looks like you or speaks like you or comes from a similar background to you in a position that you would really like to get to, it's very hard to think that it's possible. Whereas when you do have role models, you think, oh, well, actually, if Bob's done it, you know, for the, for the, the other women coming into, into the department, you think, oh, if Bob can do it, well, then that's great because that means they can do it too. And, um, and it's interesting what you said as well, because um, about that you, you're quite, you're very humble. I know you're incredibly humble about your achievements and you don't, you know, you don't think of yourself in the way that other people probably see you, but sometimes it takes other people recognizing something in you that that then gives you the strength and the courage to, to actually go for the promotion or to, you know, to go for the position. And then when you get there, you go, Oh, actually, yes, I can do this. What was I worried about anyway? You know? And I think that's lovely that you have this supportive group that kind of saw, saw that you were capable of so much more and deserved the recognition. Um, and then that's helping the next generation come through as well. Um, which is fantastic. Um, 
Can we talk a little bit, Bob, about the, because um, it's such a fascinating topic, and I know that we, we could talk for hours, right? I know there's going to be a follow-up podcast, I can just tell there will be. Um, but let's talk about sort of the perception of the sex trade, and even before we started the, um, you know, recording, you said to me, well, you know, it's prostitution is one aspect of the sex trade. Um, so people apply labels and stereotypes, and they have a view of what it's all about but you you're you know very well from your expertise that that's not necessarily the case so can we talk about that a little bit because I know you've done so much research in that space um where to begin well the uh we all know you know they say prostitution is the oldest profession I mean there's been uh uh a, a recognition throughout history that uh sexuality is an important part of life and um, you know, ancient goddesses, you know, they used to worship it in different ways and have a different feeling about sexuality in women than we do today. And, but what's, I think what's important is a, is a couple of different things. Um, some of the misconceptions, it's, it's about gender, it's about women. And as you mentioned, it, it's not just women who sell sex <laughs> to men. Uh, but increasingly, it's it's and all it's always been the case that men have uh, uh, been in, involved in sexual commerce, and uh, today, and always, it's been the case that uh, trans individuals and individuals who sort of uh, challenge the lines between genders uh, have been involved in it, and that's especially the case today. So, uh, when we talk about sex work, there's a tendency to talk about prostitution as if it's just women serving men and that's just not the case predominantly but no uh the other thing is that many of the sex many individuals who sell direct sexual services um also do other things uh sex workers are the original gig workers um <laughs> and so they put together a wide variety of of uh skills and and jobs to uh to survive just like any one of us do. And there's a wide range from entrepreneurs, um, Kate Hausbeck Corgan, my uh, co-author on, on one of our books, was uh, is doing a really interesting project on uh, erotic entrepreneurs, uh, high-end sex workers who uh, really market, you know, all the all the skills that you learn to, to market a product and, uh, they're marketing their, you know, services. Um, so uh, this is the. So this is my been my what I've discovered. Uh, it for the pre last fifty years or a hundred years, trying to understand prostitution has really been seeing it as something that's deviant, a criminal act, bad women. Uh, and bad men that are involved in this. And there's a, a lot of historical reasons why that kind of interpretation has been put onto that. Um, a lot of them having to do with social class uh, discriminations as well as ethnic discriminations and racial issues. Because as a population, we tend to devalue uh, marginalized groups by saying they're overly sexual in some ways mm -hmm. and to be not sexual and to be as uh, 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 like control your emotions and your body is is 
is higher, better, at least in Western culture. So that's part of that. Um, but uh, I think what we began to see and what, what I and my students uh, have come to, uh, how we've come to approach the sex industry and understand the sex industry uh, in the years I've been doing this is that looking at the ways that it's a business like any others. I mean, we live in a society that since World War II has transitioned from manufacturing to service. Uh, you're in the tourist industry. Tourist mm -hmm. industry is one of the world's largest employers. What's tourism based on, but sort of transporting you out of your daily life and taking you to somewhere, an experience that you wouldn't normally experience. And that's come to be a valued commodity in our, our society. So the same way in which you think about tourism, we can think about the sex industry. Um, it's a touristic service, I guess, which means that you don't have to necessarily travel to a foreign country, but you can uh, go to your local strip club uh, and, and be sort of transported out of your day-to-day -day world mm -hmm. of business where you're expected to be a certain way. And there you can be all sorts of ways you're not supposed to be. Um, and living in Las Vegas has kind of revealed that to me as well. So the, the understanding the growth of the sex, sexual commerce in today's society makes complete sense as it's changed along with the ways in which the whole world has, has mm -hmm. the Western world in particular has changed. Um, so it's not so aberrant. It's a huge part. It's wrapped up in all sorts of sexualities, wrapped up in all sorts of services that we provide. And to ignore that is just, you're just missing a lot of, a lot. And so when you try to make policies to control it or protect people or whatever, you're not really understanding the way things work unless you understand it from that perspective. And that's what we've done at, at uh, UNLV in Las Vegas. I've got, there's a number of scholars here. Also, there's a great scholar, Lynn Kamala, who does research on pornography and the business of, of pornography uh, in that respect. And, and over the years I've been doing this, I think more and more scholars across the country are starting to recognize the ways in which the sex industry is a lot like many other service businesses, body work, uh, all, all that. Now, that said, it's also different in that sex and gender are such wrought subjects in our culture. And so there's a lot of stigma against mm -hmm. sex work. There's been, I've experienced stigma uh, just doing research on the, on the sex industry. Um, so I, you know, I can't imagine the experiences of people who work, work in there. Uh, uh, and that is something that we have to consider in the fact that it's criminalized um, in a lot of places makes it a lot more dangerous and, and transforms the way that people would have to do the work um, if they want to survive. Um, so this is, I'm giving you the long professor answer to it. <laughs> There's so many things I could say about this. Yeah. Sex I, 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 it's prostitution is, is one part of it, but even prostitution is so diverse. I don't even know why we call it the same thing. 
uh, it's the, it, we tend to think of uh, people on the streets uh, selling quick tricks in the car, you know, which usually is a blow job or a hand job, uh, if I can say that on the radio. You can uh, say what you like. <laughs> Uh, but then there's also, you know, I talked to a lot of people in the legal brothels and they said, you know, a lot of times these guys come in and they just want to talk and they just want to cuddle. Uh, and, uh, and then you've got the high end that, 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 uh, these are businessmen who need a companion to, uh, go with them to business functions or whatever. Uh, or maybe they just don't have time to date. Uh, and this is a much easier way to get affection and connection. Um, uh, now, uh, th so there's a whole array of services, you know, including things that uh, my mom would probably think are distasteful, uh, uh, bondage and domination, that sort of thing, that uh, uh, when you look at the research, a lot of people are engaged in it. <laughs> Sorry. It's a, it's a call from the press. Wanted it. Wanted a statement. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know. I have to, well, um, uh, it, it's a shame that the press calls. They would rather talk to somebody, uh, a professor. Uh, I, well, I, they do want to talk to sex workers, but uh, it is kind of awkward sometimes speaking for sex workers, because I don't want to do that, but acknowledging that there's a lot of stigma. And anyway, uh, somebody has to say these things. Uh, and, so of and, course now. And, and Bob, sorry to interrupt, you, you're talking about the stigma um, and you know, stigma in that you'll have had pushback as well. You know, the, the fact that you specialize in this as a topic and you know, some people will judge and say, that's not, you shouldn't be doing that. That's, that's not a good thing. And, and as you say, you know, if you're a sex worker yourself, and again, you, you know, you're going to have all of that kind of negative, you know, feedback from people that are judging and, and probably judging without actually a lot of information to their hand just from what their own perception is. How have you dealt with that then through your career? Because clearly you've been in this field a long time. You are at the top of your game. You must have had to deal with that quite a lot. And it's almost like, you know, ignoring the naysayers or the people that will sometimes try and stop you from doing what you really want to do or really to have a voice out there. How have you, how have you personally dealt with that? Well, you, you know you're doing the right thing when it's pissing off a lot of people. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I have to say my university has been generally very supportive. My department has gen been generally very supportive. Uh, although uh, I feel like we're doing uh, super important research um, on that is as of help to marginalized populations all over the world. Uh, and I feel like this should be, uh, this kind of research should be funded as well as, you know, medical research should, should well, mm. you know, but it should be well funded. Uh, but unfortunately, um, yeah, it's nice that you do that research, but, but run along and be quiet and don't tell too many people you're doing this, which is unfortunate. One of the things that I want to do before I uh, retire is to um, raise funds to for a serious research center at 
at, at UNLV to, to continue um, this research because I think we're well positioned here uh, and you know increasingly I'm being asked to assist in re comparative research with a number of other countries and globally and such and, and I'd hate to see that lost when I uh, retire um, and more and more people are recognizing this uh, so how did I how did I I'm still continuing to deal with this and I'm I'm looking to your advice on entrepreneurship to help me get out there and convince people this is important to, uh, well, to help I think, Yeah, I think I think it is about awareness, isn't it? You know, and it's about education. It's like anything in any in any field. I think it's, you know, a, a lack of communication, a lack of knowledge, lack of education, um, you know, is almost a starting point to fill those gaps, you know. And I think the fact that you're making so many significant waves in the field and you are, you know, of course, it probably feels sometimes like you're pushing water uphill, I'm sure. Um, you know, and what you're talking there is is almost is that is that what you see as part of your legacy then, Bob, you know, to continue the work, continue the research and really make a positive impact on society. Because that's that's the big that's the big impact, isn't it, really? Is that what you what you really see your legacy, your true legacy being? Yeah, I, I think so. That and some and that that empowers other people mm. to stand up for individuals that that, that don't otherwise have a voice and to give voice to those those people i mean one of the ways in which i've dealt with uh the stigma is because the sex work community is so open and welcoming i mean you've got you people who are essentially outlaws who are are doing work for their own survival uh but all and and or also because they believe that what they're providing people is important and they are i i do my work on the uh with the support of all these people i couldn't do what i did do unless I do it i i'm i i think you know there should be a lot more organizations um that sex workers should be a part of and and directing and uh, uh, to to let people know, you know, educate and and inform policy. Um, I I recognize that one aspect of this is the research that goes into that, and that's the piece that I fit in. But I fit into a big, large community of people who have been super supportive and super sweet and uh, and welcoming and also passionate. Uh, in what they do so that that helps me orient and know okay I'm doing the right right thing I mean I've had people tell me if you want to save the world why don't you just stand up for poverty and and inequality and I'm like I am I, I am yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of sex workers that are out there that are that do you know completely by choice and are entrepreneurs and they're doing great but, and they still suffer discrimination simply because they're individuals selling a service that you think is not appropriate, but yet lots of people need it. At the same time, there's all the, the marginalized folks, the most marginalized races and classes that are existing uh, in a world where, you know, we live in a country where there's no health insurance. And, and um, how do you survive? 
well, selling sex is one thing that you can do, but we want to throw you in jail. And um, a lot of the problems, I mean, it, uh, sex work also uh, has room for all the, you know, the, the, inter the relationships between clients and the sex workers and the third party managers and other people that are generally involved in supporting uh, a service. Um, are also can be sexist and can be exploitive and just like in any other business and because this is so stigmatized it's it's it makes some populations even more vulnerable mm. um, when you think of sex trafficking which is a a serious problem in this uh in the world um i see that problem as a problem of of inequality and and poverty um, and not so much a problem of bad sex, uh, you look at, uh, the, we have an image of young kids being captured off the street and chained up to beds and drugged and being forced to sell sex. And when you look at what's actually happening on the ground, it's kids runaways who have nowhere to go, who maybe come from an abusive family or they have uh, uh, they're trans or an alternative kind of sexuality or whatever and their parents can't stand it and they kick them out of the house and they got nowhere else to go and they get together with friends and what's one thing you could do is you can sell uh, sell sexual sell sexual services and, and the the problem is the environment in which they're forced uh, to choose something like this um, and we're the whole trafficking rhetoric is we're looking for criminals. We're looking for networks and uh, of of criminals who are capturing innocent people off the street because that plays better. But that's not what's going on. And we talk to any trafficking agency, and that what they're seeing is less these bad guys uh, forcing people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. Not that that doesn't happen, but um, and that that's already criminal if people could go and report them uh, but I, I think we're we're too easy as a culture to to look for bad guys that are the problem and not to uh, the fact that we've we've abandoned a whole class of people and a group of mm. youth uh, have nowhere to go yeah, it's it's such a fascinating insight um, here because most people, as you as you rightly say, would would not think of it in this way at all. So you know, you're trying to really shit, you know, create a, a real a real gear shift in in perception and, and and knowledge and what the reality is versus the sort of the the image. Really, can we talk about the book, Bob? Because I know the book, um, you know, sex in the digital age. So one of the, I suppose, there's a couple of questions here. Um, one sort of why do the book in the first place? And two, the title of the book implies a, a significant change in the provision of sexual services, um, given digitalization of all sectors. So two questions, why do the book in the first place? And, and then just sort of a, a, a bit of a highlight in terms of, you know, the key, the key things that you cover in the book. Um, yeah, so uh, as I was saying, this whole, every year, in our state legislature and, and nationally, there's new laws coming out about trafficking and criminalizing uh, 
individuals that are labeled as traffickers. Increasingly, clients are labeled as traffickers because um, because uh, anybody under 18 in the United States is labeled that's trading or selling sex is labeled trafficked. So that if a guy is caught uh, having uh, paying for sex from somebody under 18, they're labeled a trafficker. Now they shouldn't be doing that anyway, uh, but uh, they're subject to huge prison sentences and that's supposed to dissuade the problem. Uh, so there's a, a large misperception of, of clients, of who they are and what they're doing. Um, and I think if, if they understood the market, uh, they, they would probably not approach policy in this way because what they end up doing is throwing many people who missing the problem. Um, so I got together again a great team. Um, Tila Sanders, who is a, a professor. I first met her when she was at the University of Leeds, um, your alma mater. Uh, she's now at the University of Leicester. She's probably the most prolific writer on sex industry in the world. Um, she's quite amazing and also fun and wonderful person. And uh, she did a large research project in the UK where she surveyed sex workers and surveyed about 1,200 clients. At the same time, sort of separately, I had done uh, a survey of clients in the United States, starting with clients of the legal brothels, but then recognize, I mean, quickly we realized clients just don't go to the legal brothels. They, they engage in a, a, a wide variety of, of services. Um, so we opened it up and got about uh, 800 usable surveys. Uh, and so Tila and I said, let's, let's combine forces and, and write a book because, you know, people need to know about what the reality is. Um, so we did that. We were joined by uh, a great graduate student, Chris Wakefield. Uh, they are an expert in stats and, and they're very knowledgeable about uh, sexuality. Uh, and so um, they joined the book. So Chris, Tila and I uh, got this book out. Tila is wonderful to work with. I'm, I'm like a ponderer and I will edit and take forever and she's a get it out the door person. You know, like I said, you gotta find the right team. team. <laughs> Um, so it, it worked very well and uh, it, it came out. Oh, do I have a copy? I think I have a copy right here. I'll just show you. We fabulous. Paying for sex in a digital age. Brilliant. And, it went, and when, was it, when was it published, Bob? It was obviously this year. Was it, was it pre-February? February. Great. Excellent. And is that aimed more at academia or, or for your, you know, just your average Joe to, to read and enjoy? Well, uh, I always like to say that I have a habit of making sex boring. <laughs> so it's not the most engaging on the edge of your seat read, but there's an amazing amount of information in there. So the hope is that it's for uh, policymakers and, and uh, NGOs and um, 
uh, as well as scholars uh, who are who are looking for real empirical research to make better policy, not just going off of uh, right uh, uh, stories and um, that. But uh, what we did was we examined uh, the market for sex. Um, who are the the people who are purchasing these services and uh, we look at the demographics uh, of these individuals. Now these are individuals who use um, the internet predominantly in order to find services. Um, uh, so I don't think we got to uh, a population that uh, gets a lot of sexual services from the streets, mm. but we did get some. I mean, what we find is that there are different groups of clients, some who throughout their lives have, have paid for services from a wide variety of different markets. Uh, some who just stick to the internet market because it's safer. And so it's, it's interesting, some of the same things we find about uh, uh, buying things on the internet, uh, it's probably stuff that your readers already know about marketing and about uh, uh, how to, um, well, the client, you know, the clients, most of the clients browse. They spend far more time, especially in the UK, where they haven't criminalized uh, online uh, connections and online advertising. Um, so they spend a lot of time browsing and choosing and picking and trying to decide, is this service provider provide what I want? Does this one do what I want? Because you're, you're going to spend time and lots of money with people and you want to know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> so they do spend a lot of time doing that, and they use search engines and, and all, all of that. Um, and that, the, average, uh, uh, the average person that answered our surveys uh, pays for sex maybe two to three times a year. Uh, so it's not that frequent. But there are some who pay weekly and um, some who've only paid a couple of times in their lifetimes who answered the survey. Uh, there's uh, not only men who are want to pay for services from uh, female, but but also female presenting. Or there's trans people who are selling services. There are trans people who are buying services. Um, there are uh, you know lesbian, gay, uh, bi folks at, at both ends. Uh, so it's a it's a place where uh, as a whole, the, the clients who answered our surveys were much more um, sexually diverse in their orientation. They weren't just straight, heterosexual, cis men. They're, they mm. tended to be uh, much more diverse. Um, and uh, we asked a lot of questions about violence um, and very few of these, and we didn't ask, we know, we're social scientists, so we know how to ask, hey, do you, how often do you beat your wife? You know, we're not going to ask something like that. But we ask in ways to try to uh, elicit, uh, you know, problematic interactions and that sort of thing. So it's very, very rare. And clients are subject to crime as much as they see exploited people. And many of them want it away 
to if they see somebody that's being exploited or they feel like they're not there because they want to be, they want a way to be able to report this to the police. And as long as it's illegal, you, you're likely to get in, mm. in trouble. Well, it's fascinating. Um, it really is fascinating. So, I mean, the book, the book being out is great because it's, it's obviously covering a lot of different angles, um, not only about the play of technology, but just sort of, like you say, the diversity of, of um, preferences, really. And, and Bob, I'm fascinated uh, how all this plays out at home because, you know, obviously you've got three beautiful daughters and a, lo- a very loving husband. Um, so, you know, how, how, does, how does the family sort of feel about your chosen profession um and 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 i know you've got a very interesting backstory as well so it might be quite nice to share a little bit of that if you don't mind um as well so first question is how do the family react to sort of your chosen profession um well they're they're supportive uh uh i have three girls um which uh, it, it worked perfectly. Um, you know, I'm always like, what, what's come in my mouth about, you can't go out of the house wearing that. Like, what? <laughs> it's like, that's my mom. Oh no. Who, who am I? What am I doing? What am I saying? What's the message here? So that's been actually very educational. And I, I, I learn a lot through watching my own interaction with my kids. <laughs> um, they're all, they're teenagers now. Uh, 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 but, um, but they've been very supportive. But the, the nice thing is, is like whenever I start to talk about sex, they're, they're like, oh, no, no, stop, stop. No, I, I don't want to hear about it. Uh, so uh, that's kind of good um, in, a, in a whatever way. But, uh, but and so I'm always joking with my husband, you know, I can get you free services or I, I, I can juice you in here. And <laughs> No, no. Uh, he talks big, but no. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, my word. I, mean, I, have to, I have to say that, like, my, my aunts, you know, and are intrigued. Like, every time I talk to an older person about this, they're like, oh, really? What are these people like? You know? Uh, so it's, it, it, everybody's been supportive. Yeah, well, it's probably for the for that older generation where you've got that one to one relation. It's probably really liberating for them, you know, to be able to have a forum to even find out what really goes on, you know. And uh, I can imagine that those conversations are probably really quite entertaining, but also really informative for them as well, you know. That's fantastic. Oh my god! And and Bob, on the on you mentioned you've got three three beautiful girls. Um, they were now teenagers and quite strong-minded, all three of them. <laughs> do you want to, if you're okay with this, do you want to talk about, about kind of, you know, how the family grew, where you started out with, with, uh, with, with getting the girls and, and that, how that played out for you? Right. Well, it, it's really quite an amazing story that I oftentimes go, this happened to me. Um, but so, uh, uh, Mike and I tried for years to have kids uh, of our own and it, it didn't work out um, but that was sort of okay but then I, I we thought uh, about adoption but that process seemed daunting to me um, and then I thought well I want to do international adoption um, because there's you know uh, some interesting 
I could talk, you know, for a couple hours about <laughs> about this, and it's 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 difficult and contradictory, um, many things. But I was thinking about international adoption. Uh, to make short story long here, I contacted a friend of mine who is an attorney, and she said, you know, an old friend of mine is an adoption attorney. Let's go talk to her and see. So we went and had a meeting with her, and she basically said, I don't know anything about international adoption. And then my friend Jonelle and, and her just sort of did lawyer gossip, and I came home, and Mike had gone on a work trip. And uh, the next morning, I got a phone call from her office saying, we have a birth family uh, and the birth mom just contacted me and it just didn't feel right with their potential adoptive family. Do you want to talk to her? And I was like, freaking out. So I called a friend of mine who's also adopted and said, I mean, who had adopted um, her child and uh, for advice. And so I, I called this woman up to make an appointment to meet her. And I was all nervous. I thought I would have to talk about my philosophy of mothering and, you know, the, the research. Listen, you know, I'm a scholar. I can approach it that So I called her up all nervous. And um, the first thing she said to me was, uh, so you're going to be the one who's blessed with my children or, or something like that. And I was like, oh. And she recalls the conversation as the first thing I said was, how are you? And she said the previous mother had never, potential mother had never even asked her how she was. Um, so we fell in love with each other immediately. And I went to meet her and she looked exactly like my mom. Uh, we already had three beautiful children who were, uh, you know, just barely a year old who were three, three years old or two and then three. So she had three young children. Uh, all from the same father, and her and her husband were uh, homeless at the time. They had had problems with meth. They were living in their car. He w was arrested, and, and that's how they sort of got into the system. And she was seven months pregnant. Um, and so uh, we uh, took care of their family um, for the next three months, which is what you do. You, you uh, uh, you take care of the birth family. And then uh, we were there when our daughter Sydney was born. Uh, and, you know, uh, the mom and dad had said, you know, after the baby's born, we're going to close the books. We'll, we'll not contact with each other because I just don't think I could do it. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, but we'd gotten to know each other very well. She's quite an amazing person. And, um, so after Sydney was born, she was like, well, you know what, maybe let's go ahead and keep in touch. <laughs> and she always sort of said, my womb is your womb. And she's just a, 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 a funny, hilarious person. And um, three years later, we're getting ready to go out trick-or-treating on Halloween. And uh, at that time, she... Uh, after Sydney was born, she begged the doctor, you got to tie my tubes, you got to tie my tubes. Uh, but uh, it didn't end up happening because she didn't have transportation to get back to the doctor and, you know, health insurance issues and all that. So she never got her tubes tied. So this time 
she calls me up and says, do you know anybody who wants to uh, adopt a, a baby? And I said, oh, maybe I do. And uh, I'll look, at, look it up. Well, she said, give me the name of the attorney. I said, okay. And I said, um, who, who, who is it? Is it somebody you know? And she says, well, it would be me. And I was like, Ugh. and she said, I said, so you're pregnant again. Yeah. Uh, so Mike and I freaked out and we're trying to at first find somebody else to adopt uh, this child who would have been a full sibling to mm. our, our daughter, Sydney. And after much consternation, we debated this and debated this. Uh, then I went in for an ultrasound, her first ultrasound, and she looked a little big. And I listened to it. So there, there's a, the backstory behind this is it was an amazing education in how social class works and class differences. Because while this, uh, this woman and I had a whole lot in common with each other, uh, there is a complete just complete social class difference in the way people were that she was treated so we took her to the doctor and the woman berated her because she looked like she was too far along and she wasn't getting uh care and i was like how can she do this she's poor um so the uh anyway i waited and waited and waited and waited finally uh i went in and said oh uh, so what is, it, what is it, a girl or a boy? She said, oh, it, it looks like it's a girl. And the other one's a girl. <laughs> <laughs> Twins. And um, sure enough, uh, eight months later, our twins were born. <laughs> uh, both girls, full siblings. Um, and, uh, uh, yep. Uh, and I, I will say that Dee, uh, the birth mom, has gone on. She, uh, they continued to struggle a little bit with drugs and, and, and jobs. They were doing fine, but then 9-11 happened and there were just no jobs in the city. Anyway, um, we ended up helping get, it, get them into low-income housing, which there is not in enough to go around in the city. My, my husband worked in social services, so he had connections, and so we helped them. And then um, they they fell back. Uh, anyway, after the twins were born, she ended up going to a rehab center with her kids and uh, ended up getting a degree, uh, ended up getting a, a master's degree, ended up getting a job running the, the place that she had entered into and now is an executive in a hospital uh, doing their, uh, uh, I, I should have looked this up, a drug-related kind of program for this, this hospital. So she's doing great. Um, and it just, uh, it was an experience of an amazing connection with an individual and you just get to see once again how we stereotype marginalized people and, mm -hmm. and what was she doing having so many babies and uh, they got to pull themselves up with the bootstraps. Well, it's hard. It's hard. And you see firsthand what goes on and ha what a difference a few little social supports where you hold your nose and don't judge how they're spending their money or what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But eventually, they come around and they 
and they give back to the world. So um, that was a real, and continues to be a real important education. And then of course I've got three amazing yeah. kids. <laughs> it's such an incredible story. I mean, the God, there's so much, it's a story of hope, um, you know, love, friendship, um, you know, and just as you say, how, how someone can, with the right support and a bit of, you know, someone's believing in them and, and having, you know, the, 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 you know, the encouragement and accepting them for who they are, but also helping them become who they can potentially be. Um, and that support that you and Mike, you know, gave Dee and, 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 and your beautiful daughters, you know, I mean, incredible, incredible, heartwarming story. Um, and it's just so apt, you know, Bob, that, that kind of it happened to you, really. And I think that says a huge amount about you as a person, you know, and, and all the good you do in the world. Um, you know, and I think it's been a fascinating discussion. You know, it really, really has. But what a, an amazing sort of story to, to kind of end on, really. Um, but it feels like we've only just scratched the surface. We could, like, talk for hours. So I would love for us to do a follow-up, a follow-up podcast, if you you were up for that as well, Bob. Sure. That'll be really cool. But before we before we finish, um, you know, there's so many, I think, life lessons in here and societal lessons and, and insights into a world that most people would never ever have the chance to really understand. Um, and what you've shared today has been absolutely incredible. And you know, when you look back on on kind of your experience, your life. Um, what, what, what's, the, what's the best piece of advice you would think to give someone starting out in, in life? It could be an education or, or maybe someone that, you know, they might not know exactly what they want to do um, necessarily. You know, you didn't really know the path you were going to take, but what an impact you've made. What, what kind of advice would you give to young people today, do you think? Well, um, I, I had a lot of privilege. I, you know, a white privilege. I, I was a woman in a world that at that time was, was, was not that welcoming for women. Uh, but I found other women and we uh, helped each other up. And, and today, uh, people of color at, who are struggling uh, in a, an increasingly you know, bifurcated world, um, are facing some of the same things I see that I, I used to face at some level. And they are finding communities of color that are helping and supporting each, each other. Um, and uh, so I guess the lesson is both a, an individual one, like, you know, believe in yourself, have confidence uh, and, and recognize that, what you what your what your abilities are and what they aren't, and and recognize that the collective is important, um, but also to make room for other people. Uh, don't don't take it personally when uh, you know they're all oh, those those people are are separating off and they think I'm discriminating against them. Well, yeah, let them encourage them do that. Um, and uh and you will be better for it uh so that's yeah. that's what i've learned from sex workers and from just 
yeah, myself. Wonderful. Oh, great piece of advice. Oh, thank you so much, Bob. It's been absolutely incredible. And as I say, I think we've, uh, we've only just scratched the surface. So we, uh, we will definitely be doing a, a, a follow on, I, I think as well. And it'd be great to see what's next for what's next for Professor Bob Brents, um, uh, you know, and, and leaving that great legacy that you talked about on, you know, finding the funding as well. So good luck with all of that. And uh, thank you so much for being brave, bold and brilliant. Well, thank you.